Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullknight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 142 are Azil. Hey. Grill. Hello. And Gabola Tula. Hello. Welcome back. I don't know that anybody needs to know this, but uh, my voice is kind of coming and going. So maybe halfway through the, vo- the episode, I'm going to sound like some kind of old man like this. And I'm not trying to sound creepy. It's just how I am. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't have any no news other than that. Uh, it, what else has been happening in the Berserk world? I think the only thing I really want to mention is something I kind of mentioned already, which is... Puella recently finished the uh, artwork of Berserk interview that is now donezo and is available for Patreon gold tier subscribers. So definitely go check that out. Six plus six pages worth of the interview or or all all, the whole interview is six pages. So it's very, very good. Awesome. Yeah. She's preparing the next stuff now. Do you want to say what that is? Sneak preview or anything? Well... Well, she'll be doing the you know the video interview from from Mira. Uh, that's that's something uh, that's being worked on, and then we'll do the we we'll resume the persona interview basically that she was doing before, which is a very long interview as well with uh, the developers of the video game series uh, Persona. So that one's pretty interesting. It's quite long, and it and it goes into a new territory. It's not just talking about the same stuff that interviewers tend to always ask him. So it's also interesting. With the video stuff, there's uh, the aspect of making sure translating the right words with transcription and so on. So that's a, a bit of uh, of work there. But yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start um, pretty soon. Yeah, awesome. The video would be the one that was released on the Blu-ray edition of the Berserk Memorial Edition. But also, of course, if you were at the Berserk Exhibition... Uh, you could see it there as well. Yeah, it was originally planned to only be shown during uh, a special preview, uh, basically during the first uh, opening of the, the exhibition in Tokyo, the original one. But then, uh, since uh, Mira-sensei passed away, they just featured it like generally for the general public, and then they also added, included it on that DVD. That's how we we can uh, translate it. Yeah, it it does feel like it uh, covers a lot of the same material as the catalog uh, interview, but you know, why not do it anyway? Oh, there's some new stuff in there. There's yeah. some, there's definitely some new stuff in there. Some, sure. but I mean, so it's eleven minutes long, like I had said at the time, and uh, there is there is a lot of uh, the same gr- ground being covered. So yeah, there is some new stuff, but I'd say at least. Like half of it is not new, probably more. Sure. Yeah, it's a neat video. Talks of, like it's it's like a message to fans. You know, some some of that interview is him talking to fans. Yeah, it's uh, not even and, really an interview. I mean, yeah, he's prompted, prompted is what mm, it is really. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. All right, well, that's about it. It's all that's happening. There's no new news on the next episode of Berserk. Uh, so things have been very slow and very quiet, and that's fine with me. Yeah, there's some statues, I mean, figures being announced uh, from Figma, from uh, something called Figars also, I think. Uh, and, and since there's a Wonderfest on right now, there's also some garage kits being released. But mm. that's like, 
bottom of the barrel stuff as far as news goes. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fringe stuff there. Why Although fringe, <laughs> fringe. <laughs> um, yeah. I saw a new one of Skull Knight and Mr. Waffles. Is that a new Figma? Yeah, yeah, that's the new Figma they, they showed off, yeah. I'm actually quite shocked that they are doing the horse. Uh, yeah, but it's awesome. Yeah, especially for like a figure. But, you know, why not? Um, so, yeah, there's that one. Um, some of the companies doing like uh, Guts in the Berserk Armor. Uh, and I saw some other stuff. And as far as uh, Garage Kits, there's one of Griffiths and Zod. Which, you know, I mean, it's it's done by non-professionals, but some of these are pretty neat. So, mm. yeah, it's always, always interesting to see this stuff. Although I, myself, I mean, I haven't really bought many of them because, you know, you've got to assemble them, paint them, and that's not my forte at all. And then you got to find room for them. <laughs> yeah, true. Like, even after you do that, it's like, where am I going to put this thing? And, yeah, yeah even though I have a house myself, I've... Uh, pretty much exhausted all the places I can put Berserk stuff in, especially statues, you know, because you need to put them on something. You can't just put them on the wall, so it's a, yeah, it's a yeah. I gotta tell you, I've fallen in and out of love with Figmas, like, very quickly. They look really cool, but they're kind of a pain in the ass at the same time. Like, I feel like they fall apart pretty easily. Yeah. And, I don't know, you gotta be they don't a... stay propped up very well. Do You gotta be a certain type of person i'm just like hey you do the pose i'll i'll put it on the shelf and dust it <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of the same here i have, I have a bunch of figmas i think maybe the first two they did and they're still like in the box because there's one I, I i took out and i tried to pose it and stuff and i spent like 30 minutes and i was like you know, it's I'm not satisfied difficult. with it. And so I'm more of a statue guy myself. Just give me something I can put some somewhere. Looks good. Yeah. Fine mm-hmm. by me. But yeah, some people are big fans. Yeah. I think the, uns- the unspoken thing is that to do those well is, requires a kind of discipline that is not for everybody. Like to <laughs> sand down the edges, right? And then you <laughs> got to paint them with the right colors. And then you got to do the gloss over the part. I mean, it's just like a whole epoxy world out there oh yeah not, yeah the garage kits world. are a whole world of of yeah <laughs> pain <laughs> yeah and yeah, it's just garage... not for the average person yeah yeah for sure garage kits so we were talking about figures now like action figures you can pose and stuff but garage kits yeah i mean that's a whole other thing where i mean i feel like a lot of people just will find a guy that paints it for them but <laughs> You gotta pay out the nose for that. So, yeah. yeah. And, and trying to paint it yourself, I mean, you better have some practice models first because you're gonna botch the first 10 or 20 you do. I, I do remember I was in high school. I think I was a freshman in high school, maybe a sophomore, so 15 or so. And I got an Evangelion Unit 1 thing from a Japanese like hobby store. And I was like, all right. And I assembled it and I was, and I finally assembled it and it looked like complete shit. Just like, cause it had, it was just one color. Of course, it just came from a little plastic tray of parts and you assemble it and it just looks like complete shit unless you add all the details. And it's just like, I'm never going to do that. That's not my world. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. It can be tough. Yeah. With that being said, I had a, I once had a coworker a long time ago who he painted, he started painting warmer figurines. And mm-hmm. he did it for himself at first. And then when he got sufficiently good, he started doing it, uh, 
like on contract for the people. And he made quite a lot of money doing that. And it was like, yeah, you should get into it, man. It's a good business. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. But uh, yeah, there, there's some, some money to be made. Or at least there was at the time. There was like, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm. Just yesterday but, for old man me. <laughs> that's what happened with uh, Sean Elliott, which is going to uh, be a name that no one on this podcast knows. But like <laughs> uh, a guy that on Twitter that Aziel and I used to follow, or I followed at least, he, he went from making fun of Warhammer stuff to being like a really, really, really adept at doing that kind of stuff. Uh, his his stuff's good. I would never do that. That's way too deep for me. Too deep a nerd hole. I'll never climb out of it. Yeah, well, he was he was an artist, right? Originally, or oh, I forgot. He was he was a journalist, a, a game journalist. Yep, game journalist. It was a writer turned game journalist turned game developer. Yeah, well, a life. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we'll get started. Um, we're going to finish up volume thirty today in the reread, and I will take the first episode: uh, Demon Beast Invasion. Vertanus becomes a battlefield, the one that Sonya promised, full of monsters around every corner. Run run from the crocs, the tigers get you. Run to the harbor, the ships are on fire with Daka pouring out of the smoke. News of the invasion spreads to the Vandimians, and they learn that the supernatural things they saw at the ball were indeed real. Roderick offers to take Gut's group to any destination. They say Skellig, a place that he's heard of, and he agrees, saying it's on his way home to East after all anyway. Federico sees Farnese and the group leaving, then I guess, apparently attempts to apprehend them before they leave. Uh, Lady Vendimian instead wishes them a good journey, and that's the last I think we see of her. They decide to head out on foot to the harbor, knowing that Guts and the others can muscle through any monsters they might encounter. Farnese stops to change outfits, and Guts runs into an old acquaintance, Owen from Midland. That's the summary. Uh, a couple notes that I have... I thought it was interesting that Roderick makes a couple calculations here and he kind of does them between frames. The first is that uh, he sizes up guts. Is that in this episode? Isn't it? Did I miss that one? Yeah, no, he yeah, does. They meet here. Yeah, that's right. He sizes up guts, which is a really cute little moment where he uh, say he, he notices that Farnese and guts have some kind of relationship. And yet he's her fiance. He's trying to like figure out, Hmm, what's the, how do I calculate my way around this big guy? But instead of being like scheming, he goes very forthright, knocks on his chest in a kind of a manly way. It says, Hey, I'm Roderick. So just a straightforward, straightforward dude, no scheming, right? Which is sort of what I, mean, I mentioned scheming just because it seemed like that's how that character was being positioned early on whenever he was first introduced. And I just don't think that's who Roderick is, you know? I think that's, I think where he ended up as a character is not where it felt like Mira was taking him initially. So. I thought that was an interesting moment, at least for me personally. Yeah, I think in this episode, generally, you see uh, a change of dynamics with him and, and Magnifico. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. uh, Magnifico's like, what are you talking about? You know, going out and stuff. And Roderick's like, well, your plane fell apart, but uh, I don't want to let go of this whole engagement thing. And uh, Magnifico's like, well, I guess, okay. But I feel like... Roderick's kind of not scamming him, but you know what I mean here? Because he's interested in Farnese, just, you know, aside from all the scheming, he just wants to get her. And for him, you know, as long as he's on the, the sea, he's, it's fine by name. So it really, I think, shows the split kind of between uh, what the two of them were talking about and where mm-hmm. Roderick wants to go. And Medfico's like, well, I guess I'm along for the ride because my other option is uh, getting uh, fucked up by my dad, basically. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Magnifico has to make a choice. Uh, ultimately, he chooses to avoid what he thinks of as possible censure and goes along with the group. Although, I don't know that it's obvious at all that he would have been facing a punishment. Like, he didn't actually do anything. He's, he tried to do something, didn't do anything. Well, he raised his voice and embarrassed his father. <laughs> That's <laughs> For like 10 seconds, yeah. But either way, obviously, Magnifico comes. Um also, this little aside thing that um, Roderick says about East, which is that uh, even though they might be part of the same religion, you know, they're not part of the same exact religion. So it's not like East is compelled to, to engage in this particular war. So it's, it's like what we said last episode, that yeah. the country is apart, set apart from the continents, and so it has different uh, allegiances. Yeah, I mean, it's what I said previously about being influenced by England with uh, Protestantism versus Catholicism. I think that's pretty clearly the inspiration here. Doesn't necessarily go further than that, but yeah, it's an interesting way to say, well, it's got that nation that's friendly-ish, kind of, but they are not bound by that whole alliance thing, and mm-hmm. so he he's free to do whatever he wants. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say uh, is the two-page spread of the Dhaka in particular is really incredible because of the high contrast with the flames on their skin and kind of showing the textures of their bodies and with, with the flames. Uh, really gorgeous and also um, grotesque, obviously, but also the, the varying features of the Dhaka. It's not like, you know, one looks like a clone of the other. They're all very different. Uh, one looks like a cone head. Yeah, lo- yeah, elongated yeah. hair, like an egg kind of thing, right? There's, a, there's then, a big one in the back. Yeah, varying shapes and sizes and shape forms. So that that was fascinating to see. Yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. That's all I had on my notes. I also uh, like, I mean, on the, on the note of the uh, drawings, that whole sequence with the fires, the tigers and stuff is great. I also love the crocs, that full page of the crocs hitting people, I think is really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And gruesome. So, yeah, I also wanted to mention that one. It's really nice. Um, one thing in my reading was Federico. It's just kind of confusing. It looks like he tries does try to stop them. And, yeah. and it doesn't work. And then Farnese looks behind and thinks to herself, father, and then she walks away anyway. Yeah, um, he's. I think he's trying to... He's telling the guards not to mm-hmm. let these guys go away because, I mean, he wants to keep control of his uh, children and yeah. probably he can probably feel that uh, these people, gods and the others, have something special about them. But, uh, yeah, he he's prevented from doing so and, you know, for the better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I do... We'll talk about it more in the next episode, but... I do remember very distinctly, and I still feel it now when I read this episode, like seeing Owen confront Guts about who he is and from the past. It's one of those things that you keep hoping will happen, that Guts will address his past, uh, and that Miura doesn't really explore that much. You know, it's one of those unplayed note kind of things. You know, you want Guts to acknowledge that he was a hero of the Hundred Years' War, but he never talks about it, never wants to talk about it, right? And here's someone who knew him from the past, at least, you know, from a, from a distance, Basically forcing him to confront that. Uh, so that was a great cliffhanger because I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this is it. Uh, not quite, though, of mm. course. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say that I like how this episode begins a long stretch of uh, kind of moments where Magnifico gets more and more increasingly distressed yeah. where, to the point where he just becomes a mummy. And uh, 
I, I just really like how <laughs> how he's just becoming horrified, more and more horrified as as the episodes <laughs> go on. Uh, I was also going to say that I really liked that little moment. You guys kind of touched on it between Roderick and Farnese when Farnese is looking over at Guts and Guts is like staring off into the distance. I I don't know why. I just found that little moment really funny where. You know, I think Farnese, I'm not quite sure. Farnese is looking over at Guts like, oh, I'm engaged now. And, and you know, <laughs> this whole thing with Guts is never going to work out as if it would anyway. But it's just like a funny little weird girlish moment that I liked. And Guts' yeah. expression is just purely aloof. Like, yeah. whatever. It's <laughs> so great. Do- doesn't care. Yeah. yeah, he's not engaged in that conversation at all. Yeah, I mean, well, I think Roderick can tell that it's one-sided. You yeah, know, this whatever this fascination is, it's just purely one-directional. Yeah, I think it's. I, I like how like it's pretty subtle the way she looks at guts. Maybe because she's also worried about her place in the group and so on. And Roderick picks up on that immediately and reacts immediately. And she's also, I think, just from guts' demeanor and you know the way he's he looks and so on. He, he manages to find a way to a- approach him that's, what says that jives with who Guts is mm-hmm. versus being something that would be disruptive and uh, getting told to fuck off, basically. So, yeah, I, I found that interesting. And like you said, Walter, earlier, it also, I think, helps uh, develop Broderick's character as someone who's not just, like, who's beyond, for example, a Magnifico who's trying just to scheme and get mm-hmm. ahead and pretty selfish overall. I guess uh, among the little details, because there's a lot of things happening uh, in this episode, uh, one of the details I, I liked is uh, Shiruke and Isidro high-fiving when they they get told they're boarding yeah. the ship. I, I thought that's so cute. It's Re- adorable. Yeah, really love that scene. Uh, it's like, you know, whereas they're often played almost not as enemies, but, you know, kind of rivals or they're, Isidro's always trying to bother her and so on. So mm-hmm. just re- great moment. And it looks like in that same panel, while Shirky and Asidro are high-fiving, Eva Lyra is actually s- s- smacking Puck on the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, just really great stuff. Uh, I also like this starts uh, some things that runs throughout the rest of the volume, which is Casca's aversion for Roderick, mm-hmm. where she's always making faces at him and so on. So much like Roderick is like picks up on guts and wants to assert himself, you've got Casca who's like, who's this guy trying to take over my my Farnese? And she's like grabbing her her arm as you know making faces at him. So I just I just thought that was great because she's also picking up on what he's trying to do, and she's like, don't touch my girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had never thought about that before, but yeah, she she definitely asserts herself in the frame with Farnese in every scene here, you know. Yeah, and, and she does, like, you, you check the next four episodes, there's always a little panel of her making yeah. a face at him. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty great. Um, also, so there's a thing that's, uh, that doesn't quite uh, conveyed very well by Dark Horse. When Isidro talks to Roderick, he calls him Osan. And mm. they translate it as man. Like, he's like, whoa, really, man? And, and Roderick tells him, oh, don't call me man. But actually, Osan means, like, a middle-aged man. So what's funny here as a joke is, you know, Roderick must be like 25, something like that. And when Isidro speaks to him as if he's 40, so he's like, what the fuck? I'm not that old. <laughs> so it's kind of a classic, it's kind of a classic joke in Japanese. And it works great here because 
I mean, obviously, for someone like Roderick, you'd be like outraged to be called son. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. It's, it's too bad. It doesn't really, I mean, transfer well to, to English. So I wanted to point that out. Yeah. There's also this little cute moment when at the end of the episode, when they're leaving the ball and Farnese is still in her big ball outfit and she realizes I can't get on a ship and go on a journey wearing this. So she ducks into a tailor and she feels bad about stealing a dress. So she's going to leave her dress in exchange. Like it's a really mundane detail, but she's trying to, you know, not be a thief, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Pretty funny. Yeah. And she draws the one picking the lock, which is also funny because that's the kind of thing it do. And actually, around that moment, there's another uh, great pun in Japanese, which becomes recurrent, uh, which is also complicated to convey in English. It's uh, Park Hiko's Magnifico. Uh, he uses a kanji for Hiko, uh, which is a male equivalent of Hime. So basically, it's like a, a prince or a young nobleman. And he always call, calls him like that, Manihiko, with the kanji to mean, you know, prince. So it's kind of a way to make fun of his uh, demeanor and heritage and so on and the way he carries himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it becomes a recurrent joke. But basically always calls him like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's also, yeah, it's, it's a nice touch, but uh, I don't know who Darkos translated it, but it's kind they of They just hard. say Menehiko. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, then it's lost. Uh, yeah, it lost doesn't mean anything. It's yeah. just like a mispronouncing his name is all that it would mean in that yeah. usage. Yeah, whereas the joke is that it's a similar pronunciation, but yeah. with a meaning of being like a prince or so it just make a princeling. Basically, it makes fun of his behavior and who he is, basically. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, the last thing I had to say about this is that uh, I, I do like the closure far as it gets with her parents, which is uh, appropriately messy and very brisk. Feels like. It's, it's how it should be, right? Our father trying to hold her and Magnifico back, like, hey, hey you, you guys stay here. And they still leave. And her mother is just quietly being like, all right, have fun. Mm-hmm. And just moving back to her own business because that's the kind of family they are. Yeah. Well, also, it shows that she's not staying out of her father's will anymore. You know, she went back into the fold. And she was able to escape her father's clutches, you know, because she's her own woman now. She's not just going to follow orders, right? So she's grown yeah, uh, to become more independent. Okay, next episode is you, Azil. All right. So that one's also uh, quite full. Uh, it's Divine Revelation. And uh, we start with Owen introducing himself and saying he remembers gods from his days in the band of the Falcon. He's got a burning question. Where is Griffiths? For he still longs for the vision he saw in a dream of a falcon of light blowing away the darkness that clouds Midland. Gus dismisses it, telling him to let go of the past. But as he leaves, he can't help but say Griffiths might actually be drawing closer as they speak. With Farnese having changed their clothes, the group disappears into the mist. Meanwhile, a ways of the city which is a holy pontiff's encampment. The man is old and frail, and his entourage doesn't expect him to survive much longer. In fact, they're already making plans for a successor, with Politiano de Vendimion being the favorite, of course. Inside his stand, the pontiff reflects on his boring and unremarkable life. He grew up in riches, but was uninterested in people and in the world in general, so he turns toward religions as a way to remove himself from it, and not out of faith. He became the pontiff not because he wished for it, but because all the others sabotaged each other. And then he just did what he was told, never caring for any of it. As he closes his eyes and falls asleep, 
maybe for the last time, he reflects on what a waste his life has been and on how the divine hand of destiny never reached out to him, wishing that it had just once. And then suddenly, giant wings of light burst in his vision with Griffiths extending them towards him. As he reaches towards the feather, he wakes up. And then there's a commotion outside as Sonia and Mule arrive with orders to take him to Griffiths. The entourage tries to send them away, but hearing the message they bear about destiny and feathers of light, the pontiff allows them in. As the messenger reaches the camp to warn that Britannis is under attack, the pontiff gives an order. They are to depart immediately and go to Griffiths. Finally, his life has been given meaning through this divine revelation. So, um, it's really cleanly divided in two parts. The one with the confrontation of God and Owen, and then the one with the pontiff, uh, his introduction, the arrival of Sonia, and so on. Uh, what's interesting about the first part is we learn a bit about Owen. He said he was the commander of the Tumul Knights. That's something we didn't know before. And then they just have this talk that I guess is pretty straightforward. Gus doesn't want to talk about his past, what you mentioned earlier, Walter. One thing I noticed, there was a slight change in the Japanese dialogue between the episode and the volume. It's on page four at the bottom panel. Uh, Gus' line begins, begins with Sana instead of Ya, meaning who knows instead of no. So it's a very slight change, but, you know, figure it was worth mentioning. Mm. Other than that, yeah, I guess you might say... Uh, to me, it's an exercise in showing how God is trying to show restraint uh, when Griffiths is mentioned. Instead of, you can feel like he's got stuff to say, he wants to unload, and then he's like, no, nah, no, nah, let's just, you know, let it go, basically. Uh, so that part is interesting. Um, of the pontiff himself, so there's a lot of line and dialogue here. One thing I'll say is that I, I do think his design is pretty great. Uh, very mm. unique and uh, distinct. So I really like his design and also like that of the men who are attending him. Uh, they do feel like very stereotypical clergymen. So that was just nice to see. Um, Dark Horse went with something, they, they went with worthless instead of boring when he's describing his life. I do think boring or dull uh, is more appropriate in this context, which is how we are translated at the time on Skull Knight. So, um, yeah, that was worth mentioning. And finally, uh, there's one part that I, I thought interesting is uh, the pontiff says he never offered a prayer for his own heart. Um, and I think that's a great contrast to what Shiruki explains a monk in Enoch about magic, which is prayer you visualize in your heart and mind. So, yeah, I thought those two things were nicely contrasted. Um, I guess that's about it for, for my commentary. What, what did you guys think about this episode? Uh, it's visually, there's several really awesome visual moments here. Uh, the, the one that sticks out most apparent is the, obviously the wings, the, the actual divine vision that he has through his dream slash not dream, right? Is the wings of Griffith, the Falcon of light, uh, parting the dark clouds, which kind of like coming out to him, unfurling like fingers kind of right in front of his face. Then he sees Griffith who doesn't even speak, but uh, has such a presence here that he's compelled to want to know more. So he's kind of awakened here. Um, I was, as I was reading this, it seems really obvious, like impossible in inspiration anyway, but have you guys seen Ikiru before the Akira Kurosawa movie? No. Yeah. No. 
So Akiru, it's about a salary man who just had like an adequate life, kind of like this guy. He didn't really do anything special, just kind of blended right in there. But he was given a diagnosis that he was going to die soon. And suddenly he has like the spark of life in him and he wants to have his life be meaningful. So he starts doing helping the community, helping the world, being a you know useful guy, a good guy, a great guy. Oh. And this final weeks of his life or days of his life were spent like on fire, basically. Um, so very similar to this. Where it's this like guy the opposite is, of Breaking Bad. Yeah, you're right. Um, so yeah, here he's basically embracing death. And in that moment is when he's basically plucked from, you know, for, for destiny's purpose here, where he has, his life is filled with meaning. But I like how it's not like God comes up and says, you will do this for me. It's really just, he gets a vision of possibility and that he could have a role in the future. And that's what gets him to sit up. And then when he hears the commotion outside, he immediately is more assertive, right? His voice, he actually says, you will let these people go and we will go immediately. And you can tell the look on the his subordinates' faces is like, wait, what the hell's gotten into this guy? Now he's yeah. telling us what to do, you know? So he's obviously, and we don't, we didn't know the pontiff before this episode, but the implication is he was very docile and didn't really tell people yeah. what to do, right? So he yeah. found his is, authority, yeah. It made me wonder very much about what is actually happening with the pontiff? Because, yeah, he was about to die, right? You could say he was seconds from death, minutes from death, or days from death, right? It sounds like that's the end. The candle yeah. is about to go out. And then suddenly he has all this life in him, all this, like, vivacity. Is that the word? Vi- yeah. Life in him. Yeah, vitality, yeah. Yeah. And it, you, you see that in his character from now till the time we know him now when he's talking with Griffith over tea, right? And he still seems like he has tons of life in him and he even tells people yeah 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 divine inspiration and it makes me wonder like is that life artificial is that was he given something here i think it's it's more like he was about to die of boredom like he didn't have anything else going on he was like you know what guess i'll die but now (laughs) he's he's excited about something and you get that you know like like god was saying inspiration do you ever feel that you know when you're excited about something you just want to you can't wait to do it and I think oh, that's yeah. – it's not something as artificial as Griffith like gave him like a supernatural shot of life. I think yes. it's, <laughs> it's more like he was just really excited about something for the first time ever. And he's like jumping and getting ready to do whatever it takes to to realize it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think very simply he had just given up. Mm-hmm. He had given up on life a long time ago and he was just letting himself go uh, essentially. And, and that, that revelation giving something, a reason to go on. And like you said, you know, excitement and so on. And I think Griffith's intervention here is just, just a dream, basically. It's a dream mm-hmm. of the Falcon of Light, which is something we've seen in pool several times, uh, which we see a reminder of with Owen Wright before. So that's a connection between these two scenes is his last thought is that of the Falcon of Light, that revelation. And he still pines for it. He wishes for him, for it to be true. Uh, and then we cut to the, the pontiff and, and that revelation comes to him then. And that makes him decide to go on and not just to go on, but to go meet this man, like these kids are telling him to. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting thing. And what, what uh, strikes me here is the introduction is what, maybe five, six pages before the dream? Not even that. And we learn basically, I mean, we learn everything there is to learn about this man. He, like mm-hmm. you said, Walter, he was docile. You know, he says so. He just did what people told him to. He had a uneventful life. 
He desired nothing. He didn't like women. He didn't like men. He didn't like food. Just, just really a boring life. And so that reminded me of maybe the hikikomori in Japan, the people who just shut themselves in and don't do anything, who like who don't want to face society. I mean, something in, in a way that feels like a byproduct of Japanese society where you just shut out the world, you want to retire from the world and become kind of a hermit. And uh, yeah, that feels like kind of the life he had. And it, it's even funny that he says he ended up becoming the pontiff because all the others sabotage each other because that's also... I mean, one of our presidents in France became president like that, basically. Every other candidate sabotaged each other until he was the only guy left. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, okay, sure, I guess I'll do. And he did pretty much exactly like the pontiff. Just, you know, was mediocre. But, you know, then again, he wasn't the worst because there's people who did actively bad stuff. That's that's how we got Joe Biden as president yeah. as well. <laughs> Grandpa Joe. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible when you see that stuff because aside from being a good story and good storytelling and so on, it feels it's something I, I say often, but it feels very true. You know what I mean? It's very... Mm-hmm. It does happen like that. Yeah, exactly. It feels so authentic. So that was that was pretty great. And yeah, of course, yeah, like, you, like you mentioned, the imagery, even the... The idol and then the shadow yeah. it casts on the ground, uh, the castle in which he grew up, and then the painting on the wall. I mean, that stuff is super creative and inspired. So, you know, really crazy visuals here. Yeah, the idea, he says the world was in some way equivalent to a painting adorning the walls without any sense of feeling. It's like he's passively engaging with the world. Like, yeah. he may as well be looking at a painting because he's so detached from engaging with the life yeah. that he's living through. Um, I thought that was, yeah, is very evocative idea, uh, and reflects his character well and un- unnecessarily well done, that kind of thing. Like, didn't need those two panels to describe this guy's life, but it does, it, you know, to use a pun, it paints the, r- the right picture of this guy. Um, the idol thing, I like how, first of all, people should be, could pick up on what's happening here, right? It's the, the idol of the Falcon of Light adorned in light. And and one and then a mirror image of it, just it's it's shadow on the ground. Um, it's the falcon of light and it, the the shadow that it casts, right? So it's also divorced from what's happening in the text. So it's just kind of like a subtle thing that's there, reminding you that it's not just like the falcon of light is <laughs> this awesome thing, right? Um, I think subconsciously it's supposed to be reminding you of that because everything else about the falcon of light in this episode is glorious, right? Yeah, I think it's also a commentary on the emptiness of his function and of his, himself as a being, where he basically says he never actually offered a, pr- a prayer in his heart, mm-hmm. which is, again, to me, like, that really contrasts with, you know, shuriken magic, and it's basically, like, when the Holy Father doesn't believe and doesn't care and really just does what he's told so that the rituals can go on. I mean, it's a huge condemnation of that religion, basically, and the emptiness of what it means, especially in a world where there's real magic going on. You know what I mean? It's not just Mm -hmm. uh, something to alleviate people's uh, problems. I think it also works uh, as a commentary on that level. As you were saying, as the word condemnation, it reminded me of when I was reading this, it made me think of the condemnation arc and just how frustrating it is to think that the pontiff is just, you know, sitting off somewhere, uh, not really doing anything or caring about anyone while all that 
craziness is happening. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it really added, I feel like, um, you know, kind of off, off the panel, making it feel like, Oh man, this guy, like you really kind of, I felt like I really hated this guy for a moment when he was talking about that, but then it helps you kind of see the full scope of his character also. Yeah. I think yeah. for someone like this, it's like, it's like winning the lottery if you're a cardinal because you can just use his authority to stamp all over everything else, right? Because you have this figurehead you can use. So it's not like, it's not like he was ever really in power anyway. You know, he clearly never wanted to use the power, wield the power of the of the pontiff's position. He just told what he did, whatever else tell him to do. So yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, something also like when I reread this, I was like Grail. I was thinking. You know, what would these guys do if they were faced with Moscus? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking of the, like the fat guy we see and my, mm-hmm. my thought was, oh, they'd probably be like, yeah, he's a bit, uh, he's a bit much, but he's useful. Mm-hmm. He's just yeah. keeping away doing what he does. And so long as he doesn't cross too many lines, it's fine. You know, he, he has his uses. Just don't, don't, don't put him in front of my face, basically. Yeah. And so I can understand. I mean, of of course, like each character has got their own thing going on, but yeah, in, in the grand scheme of things, you're like these guys—they are, they are just an extension, and it's what what we had mentioned earlier in previous podcasts. They're an extension of the you know, political world uh, we see with uh, you know Federico de Vendimion and so on. They're just basically scheming and doing their little power plays, and there's very little actual spiritual work going on here. Uh, is what I'm trying to say. It's basically just politics. Yep. Um, the the before it starts about who he is in this page, what happens? What triggers it is that he's overhearing the others outside conferring about his life, and basically saying that he was a, he was a moderate man compared to Pontius Pilate. He accomplished something special. He's he's hearing that happen, and then. He reflects on himself worthless. You know, that's, as you said, Aziel, it's not exactly that word, but it reminds me of Griffith in the tent as well. I'm not saying it's, that's what's happening, but he's overhearing other people kind of directing his life. And then he goes on from that feeling. So it's what triggers it. I thought that was mm. cool. I don't know. Well, what else? Uh, I'd go like ahead. to point go. out that shot of uh, Sonia opening the pontiff's tent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's simultaneously one of the most gorgeous shots and hilarious shots. <laughs> uh, like the you know the the curtains turn into feathers, and it's like part of his dream is still there, mixed with reality. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's Mule, like, oh brother, what is she doing? <laughs> yeah, because she's Wonderful. basically forced herself in despite what the people on the outside were saying. So Mule's trying to be uh, uh, correct about this. And Sony's like, fuck this. This is our guy. Um, Yeah. I like also the lower panel of the moonlight. Like what's going on with that? Like there's a separate panel kind of covered Mm -hmm. up by, I mean, obviously it's being illuminated by the moon, uh, which is a connection with the light he had in his dream. It's just strange. Draws attention to itself. I think. Well, I mean, I forgot if it's a full moon at this point in time, it should not be, right? Correct. It should not be. Yeah. Well, it might just be because it looks cool. Yeah, it looks yeah. cool for sure. No doubt about it. 
What I like about this little part with Mule and Sonia is that Sonia is very sure of herself, of course, because she's a medium. She can see the future. So she's like, ah, don't worry, it will cut. I, I know it because, you know, I'm a medium. And then the guards grab them and she's like, are they? And she's like, what? <laughs> what's going on? I thought, and then he's like, uh, you know, let them go. We'll, we'll do what they say. And, and so, but it's just that moment of her being like, uh oh, what's going on? I, I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, yeah, I suppose that's it. We did talk a lot about that episode. It's just visually really um, impactful. I remember this episode. It sticks in my mind, the wings in particular. Yeah, yeah. and it's a big introduction, uh, I mean, of a character that is not a main character, but he does have a Roger, you know, important role mm-hmm. going forward. So it's always interesting when you see stuff like that because, like, for example, after the condemnation arc, you know, we weren't sure we would ever see any more of the Holy See again, for example. And then we see, bam, the figurehead is there. Yeah. And it's something just introduced, like I said, in like five pages. Boom. So it's always interesting to me to see that going on because when you're reading the story, you don't necessarily stop and pay attention to that stuff because like the point of the storyteller is for you not to stop and pay attention. You're like, oh, yeah, it's always been like that. Holy See was always in the picture and, and so on. But yeah, just, you know, introducing these major characters is always, uh, to me, interesting to to analyze and pour over uh, just to see who it was done, uh, especially mm-hmm. in such a natural manner, basically. Yeah. I guess maybe uh, one thing we didn't talk about, uh, Walter, which we had wondered yesterday is, uh, you know, when Gus is speaking with Owen, uh, when he's living with a group, he's got these thoughts, basically saying those guys don't exist anymore. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's a, the Dark Horse was, uh, Gus is thinking to himself, those guys are gone now is what is the Dark Horse. Uh, and I don't know what those guys refers to. Yeah, so I um, I also wasn't sure. I felt like it wouldn't be proper for him to be. So the assumption, of course, like the basic thing, you're like, well, it's got to be the band of the Falcon, right? What else could he be thinking about? Because That's what I think, too. They're talking about Griffiths and things like that. And then I was like, you know, in Japanese, he say Yatsura. So that's very, that's a familiar way to... Hmm. To refer to people, Sonna Yatsura is what he said. So I was like, would he really speak, you know, or think to himself about the Band of the Falcon like that and so on? And um, I do think it's probably the Band of the Falcon he's referring to, basically. And my reasoning is that he's probably trying to tell himself, let it go. I, I, you know, I've got something to do with this group of people. I got to move on, basically. And it's him just telling himself, let it go. Let's just, let's just move forward. Basically, don't, don't be stuck on the past. So it's what's, um, how to say what's particular about this line is first, I do find it somewhat like, uh, unclear overall still, even though my, my conclusion is that he's talking about the band of Falcon. I do find it a bit unclear, which is uncharacteristic. And also I find it interesting that he would be having these thoughts uh, about the band of the Falcon because you feel like, well, Guts is kind of, you know, what's a, stuck on that moment, on the eclipse, on that betrayal. And he won't, he won't forget it and he won't give up on it. And here he's a bit saying, well, you know, those guys are gone. So I gotta, gotta keep moving forward. 
So that's an interesting point. Could he be talking about himself and Griffith particularly? I don't know. That might be a bit I, I, that, far. that occurred to me, but it feels kind of it feels kind of awkward that he's talking yeah. about because he's definitely still here. Guts, Guts well, is I definitely mean, still here. You know, his former life as mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that that to me that is how the scene reads naturally is. Because Owen is asking about, he's talking about you and Griffith were side by side. Where is Griffith? And then later in the scene, Guts thinks to himself, those guys aren't gone now. You're right. You could see how that would be the reading. But I think, like Azil, when Guts tells Owen, let it go, it's history now. I see that as the echo of those guys are gone now. You know, I think he's talking about the past, the Falcons, his association with the Falcons and all that. Yeah, because of the way it's worded in Japanese, uh, that's unlikely. You saying the Falcons is unlikely? No, I'm saying him oh. talking about himself. Himself. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, you did. You pointed it out in your summary, but I wanted to draw attention to it as well because it's in, it's an interesting moment where when Owen says, "Do you know where Sorkovith is currently?" and then Guts has that little. Isn't a the effect around Guts is like distraught or nervous or anxious, right? And he says, I don't know, but I wish I, and then he pauses and kind of breathes and says, no, it's, it's like, he's like, it's like, he's letting that part of him go that, that full thrill he gets when he hears that name, that, that indication of he wants revenge, that feeling he's letting it go, right? He's moving on. He's trying to move on. That's how I took that tiny little panel. Hmm. Yeah. It's, um, so it's, it's more clear in Japanese than in English, but basically he's just, he's stopping himself. It's something where he's like, he's about to say, I wish I had him right here to cut him open. And basically, he's <laughs> like, yeah, you know, just, yeah, nothing. Basically, it might be like, to just say no is a, like technically correct way to translate it. But it might be better to just to have him say nothing as far as just understanding his meaning. Because he's basically saying, yeah, no, forget it, nothing. I, I didn't say anything. Because he's trying to, yeah, he's he's like, he doesn't want to go on a tirade about Griffiths and so on. He prefers to just, he doesn't want to address it, which is, uh, it's an interesting choice. He could have been like, well, you know what, that guy, he actually betrayed me and my friends, and blah, blah, blah. He sacrificed, but then, you know, what is he going to tell him? He sacrificed us to become a monster, and then he got reincarnated, or rather, his body was destroyed, and he, you know, <laughs> incarnated into another being. I mean, what a story. It's a lot to catch up on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it's understandable. And yeah, that's, that's what's going on here. Mm. You're right, though, because it is, this is, this is a moment where Guts could just spill the beans about who Griffith is, and he actively chooses just not to engage with that conversation at all, and just say, no, you know, not going to do it. So yeah, if it, and then I, I do think I remember my first reading. I was definitely hungry for more because I've you know I think a lot of people have wanted guts to confront his past like that. This just obviously is not the moment to do it. But it's a tease, right? It's a tease because Owen is saying, "I remember you. I knew you from the Hundred Years' War. You were next to Griffith." Very few characters have addressed guts like that, right? Or yeah. if ever, you know, never. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've connected the dots for guts like that before. Mm. I mean, that's its own talk, but, uh, yeah, for years we were like, oh, now's gonna be the time where he's mm-hmm. gonna tell them about the band of the Falcon, like in the cabin, in the thing in Britannis. And for myself, I remember being like, well, the best possible moment to do it is either on the ship, where they're on the way to Alfelm, or once they get to Skellig, they're in Alfelm, mm-hmm. they've got nothing to do, uh, you know, Casca's being brought back. I mean, they've gotta have to have that talk, basically. And so it didn't happen on the ship. And uh, 
I don't know if he would have happened on their film. Maybe. I mean, they did mention that, you know, he knew Griffiths and so on. So I guess, you know, where that's addressing it, let's say it's a partially addressed, not fully. And, uh, I mean, we, we won't know if uh, it might have been addressed further with uh, Griffiths and Casca. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was an interesting scene that went on for years where people were like, oh, when is he going to tell them? Where are they going to put two and two together? And that just went on and on and on and I guess never got fully 100% realized, even though, yeah, he did have that moment where he addressed it in front of everybody uh, uh, with uh, the gurus. So A little bit. And also the corridor dreams. I think Farnese and Shirke surely picked up some of that because yeah. they see him on the... The bonfire of dream sequence. They see a little bit of the eclipse. Oh yeah, the full story is not known, surely, but they have a lot of information about guts and Casca from those days as well. Yeah, I guess the reason I say it's only partially addressed is because I feel like what people wanted is Gus to actually say so himself. You know yes. what I mean? To others, yeah, you're right. to be like, well, here's what happened, and we never, we never quite see that. He does Rickert on the hill swords. Uh, we have that moment where basically uh, Gedflin forces it out of him mm-hmm. uh, by asking a direct question, and then Shuriki and Farnese uh, see stuff in in Casca's mind, and uh, each of them also and Puck had picked up stuff along the way, but it's never quite you know sit down and you know tell it like it was to people. So yeah, it's it's an interesting scene because I feel like really went on for years and years where people were just uh, chomping at the bit to see. It. Go, go down. Well, and Mira knows that too. I mean, that's the joke with the Sidro is that he can't put two and two together himself, yeah. <laughs> even though he's been traveling with this guy, right? So Mira <laughs> is well aware and teases that whole thing. Yeah, for sure. All right. Great episode. Wait. I was very jealous of your episode as I was taking the notes. Uh, you, you know, yours was great. I had more notes for yours than for mine. So, ah. hmm. <laughs> Well, we got another one coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, next episode is City of Demon Beasts, number one. Uh, the episode begins with a group of Vertanis soldiers struggling to rally and fight against a horde of Daka. Things are looking grim before Guts enters into the fight with shots from his repeater crossbow. As the group appears behind him, Shirke apologizes that the chaotic state of the city makes it hard for her to sense odd. Guts chooses to push forward with a slash of the Dragon Slayer, which wipes out a huge swath of monstrous soldiers. The Vertanis soldiers look on in awe as the group arrives. Shirke initially worries that the fight will leave Guts vulnerable to the power of the Berserker armor, but Guts reassures her that it's not as taxing as his fight with Serpico. The group begins to fight. Serpico jumps to behead more of the Daka, and Puck uses a... Puck spark to confuse the creatures, giving Isidro an opening to finish the job. Magnifico and Roderick are shocked to see the extent of everyone's abilities, to which Evalera simply explains that it's magic. As more Daka begin to approach near the rear group, Farnese summons the Thorn Snake familiars to dispatch them, driving the point home. Using the thought using thought transference. Uh, Shirky guides Guts to throw a single knife into a dark corner where a Kushan mage was controlling the Daka. Without him, the Daka are no longer a threat, and the group can now continue to make their way to Roderick's ship. The Vertanis soldiers look on in awe again as they make their exit. Short time later, Guts and the group are still wandering through a burning Vertanis. 
Shirky reflects on the accuracy of Sonia's vision, with dead bodies lining the streets and the structures engulfed in flames. Roderick is about to walk ahead to guide them to the, his ship, but with a warning from Guts's brand, he stops him, and as a Makara crashes through the storehouse, and a group of tiger Pishacha-mounted Daka come riding in. Guts leaves the group to take care of the Daka while he battles the Makara, but he instructs Shirke to take necessary measures if it comes down to it, implying that the armor may take over. The episode ends as Guts approaches the hulking Makara, and the rest of the group turns to face the oncoming Daka. Uh, my notes for this uh, were that, like the ballroom episode that I covered in the previous Skullcast, I felt like Mira did a, a wonderful job here of continuing to emphasize how well everyone in Guts's group contributes to defeating uh, supernatural forces while everyone kind of looks on in horror. Um, so, you know, Guts and Serpico are able to do a lot of the heavy lifting while Shirke is a kind of a tactical powerhouse with her ability to use magic and sense odd. And even Isidro here is showing how much he's grown since the Cleefoth with a little help from Puck. And Farnese also is able to protect Casca and uh, herself even more effectively now with the Thorn Snake Familiars. And it, it sort of comes together now because um, we see that not only are they coming together out of necessity – but out of mutual respect and friendship that they've affirmed uh, in the previous episode. So I really like how that kind of, it just felt right, you know? Uh, and I also liked how in this episode, we get to see the Docker riding the Pishacha, just like in the illustration <laughs> at the beginning of the episode of uh, the volume. And um, yeah, I, I just thought their entrance was really funny because you got the Makara coming in like blasting it and then the Daka with the Pishatra like coming in from the side. And it's just like <laughs> when it rains, it pours. Um, so that, that sort of had like a boss fight feeling to it, though, of course, we know this is not the end of uh, the Britannis <laughs> situation. But uh, yeah, I just uh, really like those interactions and those moments. And of course... Um, the panel of well, the panel showing Vertanus burning, I thought were very dramatic and well done. And I'm wondering what you guys thought. Well, I also loved uh, the Daka riding the, the tigers, really <laughs> great, great and cute. And the Makaras, the second Makara is also. I don't know. I just love. It's so goofy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's monstrous, truly, like in the literal sense of the word, it's monstrous. But it's so goofy looking when when it comes through the house. I yeah. just I just love it. It's like it's such a different vibe from the the bitch, uh, mm -hmm. which you know is just uh, I don't know, it's just great. And um, other than that, uh, two things I do like very much the line about Serpico to reinforce the fact that he's no pushover. When God says, "Oh, that's nothing compared to when I was fighting him," it's like it's just a Really tiny thing, but it's a way to reinforce that guy, even though, you know, I beat him in the end and so on. That was a serious moment and he's no, he, he's no loser, basically. <laughs> and, and other than that, uh, I do quite like the, uh, you know, seeing Puck in action with Isidro doing the Puck's Park. Uh, even Isidro being like, okay, you know, basically, yeah, sure, I'm your student. Kind of giving <laughs> up reminds me of when, you know, Gats in volume 16. Just gives up and be like, all right, the bag is your home. And 
I like having you around. I'll admit to it, basically. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you wore great... them down eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And uh, yeah, so great moment. And also quite liked uh, Ivarla and, uh, and Farnese with uh, Serpent and so on. It's, it's a pretty cool moment when Farnese is saying, yeah, it's magic. And Ivarla is taking a pose. All, that, all those little moments are pretty pretty funny to me and, and very, very nice. Yeah, lots of little comedy asides. Yeah. When Sigiro and Puck are working together, the bottom panel, he's Puck turns into Yoda for a second there. When he's doing Puck's bark after, after the Puck's bark. Yeah. <laughs> um, Farnese and the group... Uh, Saved everybody, you know, with uh, magical powers and supernatural powers. And, and Magnifico, all he can focus on is there's a witch in the family now. You know, he's like <laughs> bummed about the culture, the political implications of having a. Uh, he can't get over it. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything else that happened also. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But now I've got a witch as my sister. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, this, I think, first of all, Seeing the group fighting together is always great. There's not, there, there really aren't that many instances of it working out quite like this, where it's a shared responsibility and everyone has their own thing and doing it, approaching it in their own way. There's like maybe what, six or eight uh, across the whole series. It's not that many. So it's great to see this happen. Uh, and it also kind of sets the stage for what happens later when they have to, right, right now they're fighting crowds. Ultimately, they're all these teamwork where we focus on one enemy, right? So this is a moment for them to just cut loose. Um, but I think the whole purpose or function of this episode, like in the grand, you know, story of Berserk, is this moment with the soldiers who are onlookers throughout this whole thing. You know, they say, "Forget about being afraid of them. These people seem used to fighting these monsters. Who are they?" And so it's like a, for me, it's like a full circle moment for Farnese, who was just like these people during the Tower of Albion, where she saw guts, you know, unwavering in, in the face of all this danger and supernatural shit, and picking up the torch and fighting. And now she's just nonchalantly like, yep, let's go. Come on. This is this is how things are. Mm. So, yeah, she has grown. She has – they are who she once was, you know, looking at these people, uh, not knowing how you can even face a monster like that. And they're not even, you know, caring about the danger necessarily. Yeah. That's a good just, point. She's an old pro now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's actually a great comedy moment at the end where you see the – the guy and the horse and the soldiers who are like ready to meet the Daka and, and scared and so on. And as the end, they once the group has obliterated everything and they're left like, what's going on? What did the guys mm-hmm. do? So <laughs> while, you know, the group is just moving, uh, you know, off in the, in, into the, the rest of the harbor. So yeah, that's a pretty funny moment as that reinforces that aspect of these guys are just like a well old machine, just mm-hmm. demolishing everything and moving on. Uh, compared to these normal soldiers. Yep. The It kind of goes without saying, but I do like the action movie style pacing of the events here, where it goes from, you know, the threat level keeps increasing. A good action movie will have a scenario that seems dangerous and then something even more dangerous appears. Uh, and even though the group is doing really well against it, that this, this, the, the, the odds keep getting stacked against the group. And that's what happens here and continues to happen for the next like two volumes, three volumes, you know, um, two volumes at least. So yeah, this kind of sets that, that pace, uh, where Daka, no problem. Makara, eh, we'll see. Uh, Daka riding Pisasha tigers, wish probably okay. Right. And then it just keeps <laughs> getting more and more dangerous. Right. Uh, it's quickly great. stacked against them. That's it. Tons. So much. This thing is like 
super dense action, you know, like just so much happening on every single page, way more than one action per page. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Thoughtful pacing of the panels. I do love, especially the shot of guts uh, throwing his uh, throwing knife, uh, yeah, and getting the cushion guy. It's just like it feels such a classic action shot, you know. It's like super fast reaction, throws the thing, damn, get gets him right in the eye. We don't see too many. It's one of those things. Also, is like if you count how many times he does that in the series, it's maybe like five. Yeah, it's not that often, but uh, each time is great. I mean, it's always a delight to see. So, great moment, like you said, super dense. Uh, really a delight to read these uh, and just paying attention on each panel. And that moment is really cool too, because it kind of capitalizes on the the readers knowing how the Dakar are being controlled without actually communicating it right, and yeah. that Shirke thought transference to guts where that person was, it, it all ex- is ex- visually explained wordlessly. You know what I mean? That's just cool. Yeah. Oh, we've got the leader and now the Dakar are not under their control anymore. Now we can move on. Like none of that bullshit, you know? Yeah. And Sarpico's commenting, well, we already killed all of them anyway. Yeah. You know, that's just pretty crazy of Mira to do where he just stacks some stuff on top and on top of it is there's always more, basically. Mm-hmm. Always more. Even when, like, stuff that you might think, eh, you know, not necessary to go that far, but still stacking more on top. What do you think happened to these remaining DACA here? <laughs> Did they get, like, jobs? Well, I'm thinking <laughs> the soldiers were like, well, now it's 50 of us against these four oh, guys. Geez. These poor guys. <laughs> I, again, I can't help but feel bad for the DACA. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. For Poor sure. Guys. I mean, when you consider how they're born and how they live, uh, yeah. yeah, not great. We spent like 20 minutes on the last episode. It's just one, once again, can't help it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's something, especially with the Ganishka monsters, uh, which I mentioned with the Makari, they're both frightening and gruesome and so on, but at the same time, they've got that pathetic yeah. air to them where it's just, you know, it's just sad. Like, they do look like abominations, you know, stuff that was just, that shouldn't exist, that was created artificially. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of pathetic in a way. I wish I could call a number, like, to call today and you too could sponsor DACA and we'll send you their photo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. There's like, a, there's like a video of a DACA trying to tie a shoe and he's looking up slowly. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I can't do it because my horns. <laughs> help, help goal. Gold needs help. Oh. I don't know what their names would be, actually. Oh, they probably don't have names. Yeah. DACA. Yeah. DACA number 47. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they Daka don't have, a, like, automatic Scrambly. tattoo stuff. Yeah, DACA is just, like, for demon soldiers, basically. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. If they could just tattoo them, they probably would. Oh, we didn't address it. It's so obvious, right? Uh, these are the DACA. The group has never seen DACA before. But do they hesitate? No. Do they wonder who the hell they are? Not really. Yeah. Just fucking plow through them. Guts is like, whatever, you're in my way. They're monsters. Yeah. Time to go. Yeah, pretty much. They're obviously cushion monsters, right? They they don't talk about it at all. They don't really need to. They're just trying to get to the ship. Um, I just think it's interesting because they spent so much time introducing this, you know, this concept of demon soldiers that Ganeshka's controlling and... In this episode, they're just in the way, you know, and that's that's their function in the story right now is they're in the way. 
Yeah, I mean, from Gus' perspective, uh, he's full fucking skeletons tied to wheels. So <laughs> who, who is this skeleton? <laughs> What's your backstory, skeleton man? <laughs> yeah. I mean, at this point, it's just like, all right, sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Can't be surprised anymore. Same thing when they get to the solitary island and he's got, like, fish monsters and whatever. It's just, all right, new day, new bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. One look at the teeth and he's like, oh, I guess these are related to these other things somehow. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not sure even cares, really. It's just like, yeah. You, you're holding a weapon. You're looking aggressive. Well, now you're dead. <laughs> it's all it takes. Moving on to the last episode. All righty. This one's called City of Demon Beasts Part 2. The Tiger Pishacha mounted Daka approach, but before they can before they can attack, Serpico swings his silf sword, shredding the tiger's faces and knocking the Daka to the ground. Roderick and Isidro do their part fending off the Daka as well. Shirke saves Magnifico's goofy ass and then looks on to Guts, who is fighting the enormous Makara. As Guts fights, he notices he notices how tough and dense the monster is. He struggles to fight while making sure the berserker armor doesn't activate. Guts allows himself to be pushed through a building so he can climb the stairs to the roof. He leaps off and does a downward thrust, appalling the Makara, and then he thrashes the dragon slayer around violently, which blows and then blows the damn thing's brains out with his arm cannon. As the Makara dies, Guts leaps off and swings a sword, having a Daka and its tiger. Finally, Guts says, The ship's gonna burn. We ain't got time for this. We gotta wrap this up quick. So, uh, I noticed that in these, this uh, section of episodes, we see a lot of eyes open, Serpico shots. Uh... To me, it feels like Serpico is a bit more open in general. Mm. Aside from being in a, a serious fight mode, it really does feel like his heart is with the group now. Not sure if uh, that's what Mira intended with this, but that's the vibe I got. Um, there's another Roderick is really cool moment when he uh, helps Isidro. I feel like his line... It looks bad when a princess protects a knight. Feels a little bit less sexist coming from his mouth. Uh, he kind of accepts that Farnese is powerful and he doesn't really grumble about it. Instead, it's like her strength inspires him to push himself further and to be of as much use as he can. Um, generally speaking, I love the look of the Makara. Uh, Mira does a really good job with uh, use of negative space. The darkness of the monster and the white sort of cross hatching made made it look especially otherworldly and terrifying. Um, finally, Guts' struggle with the beast of darkness and the armor led to a whole new type of fighting for Guts these episodes. It's pretty much his version of work smart, not hard. Uh, not hard in the sense that he can't sort of let his emotions do as much of the fighting as they did before. Guts seemed especially technical during this fight, and he was fast. Uh, 
After all, time was of the essence. That's what I got. Yeah, I don't know about his plan here where he has to get up high, so he has to get rammed. Like, it's, I'm, I'm not, I've never fought a giant whale before. <laughs> it's not the move I would make, but it worked, right? I don't know how it did it, but he did it. It's a weird move. Well, yeah, he it feels like <laughs> for guts, concussion is just a mild inconvenience. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, he's wearing an armor, and he, my, my guess on this is he jumped. So that he didn't take the brunt of the hit and he used a dragon slayer to shield himself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was rammed into the wall, but probably like he didn't get the full blast of the shock. That's, that's yeah. my guess at least. Or maybe he even managed some other way and, you know, didn't actually, because he, since he's on top of the building almost right away, like I don't feel like he got slammed into the wall and then climbed up the stairs through the chimney to get on top. You know, he mm-hmm. might have just. I don't know, use the shark to propel himself upward or some, some bullshit like that. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a story, right? <laughs> it's just like, I, I'm just imagining if Miura wanted to get guts on top of that roof, could have just had like, you know, do a backflip off of his skull or something. I don't know. Is this weird, the sequence that led to guts being on the roof? I remember it being strange initially. It's still strange now. I think it's because he basically doesn't show it happening. Like he doesn't show guts, yeah. who guts does it. That might have been for like to keep things uh, brisk. Uh, mm-hmm. It might also have been to keep the like the effect of surprise, where he suddenly shows up. But mm-hmm. yeah, he doesn't. He's basically not damaged at all. He's got just that slight, you know, blood uh, drop on, on his cheek. So yeah, guessing he managed to. I don't know how he did it, but he managed to avoid the most of the damage. Yeah. Yeah, Mira did it this way to evoke the feeling of how the fuck did this dude pull that off? Yeah, in armor, <laughs> so. big, heavy-ass armor, too. Um, yeah. I think, functionally, this episode is very interesting because it's showing how far can Guts go without actually tapping into the armor. You know, we got a little bit of that on the beach. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, he has to give into it to face the Makara. Here, he's it's like he's, it's like he's fighting someone who, yeah, I can read his moves. Like, he knows the Makara has this jet attack right so he dodges it throws the thing at the eye immediately dodges the counterattack, and then slams down to smash the trunk like he's he's encountered this monster before it's going a little easier at first but as he notes this thing's still really fucking tough and it's not going to be easy and you see him even when he has the upper hand literally on top of him it's still a struggle to kill this thing right he's still really fucking trying um he manages to bring it down but it feels like he was right up to the limit for himself right so yeah. It's like, how far can he go? It's testing that. Yeah, it's also, I feel like this serves to show his progression, how he can handle the armor pull, basically. Mm-hmm. The previous time he was wounded and there was urgency because the Makara was turning to his uh, companions. But still, you feel like each time it goes, he's getting a little better at holding it back. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he's still suffering more and more of the side effects and so on. And, and once the armor takes over, it's harder and harder to pull him uh, off out of it. So each of these scenes, I think, is uh, works as a nice progression. Uh, and it's also, I mean, that's another discussion, but the whole little adventure on the uh, on the solitary island also serves to me as an important point. Uh, on the journey to Alpham because, you know, due to that, due to the fact it's again a progression 
uh, of him and the armor. We we learn some new stuff, but I guess I'm I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. On the second to last page, uh, right as he leaps off of the the, the Makara, he he does the little uh, sliding down the elephant's trunk and then jumping thing, and then <laughs> yeah, and then he slams down with the the dragon slayer. I could not help but think of the Lord of the Rings, the third movie, Return of the I think it's Return of the King. When uh, Legolas does this this elephant jump move as well. That still only counts as one. Yeah, that's the one. I don't yeah. even remember that. Oh, yeah. it's a classic. Wow. I, I see kind of the DVDs, but I've never watched them. I've memorable watched CG this, movie. It's this story by J.R.R. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you're over, as I know what we're watching. I mean, I, I, I saw the movies in theater. Um, it's just, you know, I never had the urge to watch them again. And I'm, I'm the kind of... So I, I read uh, The Lord of the Rings a long time ago, a long, long time ago. So when the movies came out, I was kind of the guy that was like, well, they're not, this is not faithful and this is not like that. <laughs> it's not, it's not as faithful as the GRR uh, Tolkien books. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was, uh, I mean, I, I like those movies. I feel like they did a, a great job overall, but I was a little bit nitpicky about some, some parts. Yeah, but have you seen the extended editions with oh behind-the-scenes footage? No. no. <laughs> with 13 extra endings. Yeah, aren't these the scenes are like, it's like, uh, I don't know, like 20 hours to go through it or something like that? It's and three plus. Three even plus though even though they added all that shit, they still didn't get old guy, you know, Tom, uh, in the story. So Tom I Bombadil, yeah. yeah I, I, can never on forgive, on I can never forgive Peter Jackson for that. He's the best part of the story, and... He he didn't get his due, so and and then he did those orbits movies, so yeah, I can't forgive him for that. This is not the Tom Bombadil podcast. Tom <laughs> Bombacast. Should, it should be. <laughs> yeah. Um I really, really like this moment with Isidro and Roderick. It's uh it's really fucking cool, them fighting together, talking tough. If Roderick has not already won you over, he won you over on this page, I would yeah. imagine. Also, I will say, people's, uh, you, because Gops are like Roderick, Roderick and Isidro, it's more like Isidro and Roderick, right? Because oh, Isidro's yeah. t- taking two of them down and Roderick's helping a little He's bit. He's poking. Boop, poke, yeah. Poke. Let's not, yeah. let's sure. not inverse, uh, the, the main guy and the side guy here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Did not mean to well. denigrate. No, no, I know, but yeah, anyway, it is a great scene, and it's great to see them yeah, having that kind of manly, you know, boisterous talk uh, to each other. I feel like they, they they would get along well, and they, they end up doing. And this, this line where he says it looks bad when a princess protects a knight, like, I can see a, a 2023 reading of that being like, are you saying women shouldn't fight? I think it's more like Roderick can't stay on the sidelines. He, feel bad. he feels bad staying right. on the sidelines, period, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's I not mean, about women not fighting. It's about, I need to do something. I need to fucking stand in there. Step yeah, in there. yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's also, I mean, you can be as progressive as you want and still realize that, yeah, in that kind of a situation, if a woman's fighting off monsters and her fiancé is, you know, standing back watching her, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like, it's not a great look for him, right? Especially mm-hmm. if they just met and he wants to prove he's manly. It's not a great look. And that's kind of a truth of the word that's so never going to change. Uh, this moment with Magnifico as well on the following page is funny because, you know, he's rescued <clears throat> by the, the magic user. So, like, if you're in an RPG, you know you're got pretty fucking pathetic if 
you got to get rescued with a melee attack from a witch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just like gets bopped on the head and Magnifico can't even, can't even defend himself in any way. Well, he's a, yeah. I mean, I think it's also speaking of progressions, he shows his transformation from a guy who in his element could appear ruthless and having mm-hmm. some power, even being somewhat dangerous in certain circumstances to just being a useless coward. Uh, once he's out of his element, because yeah, you know, I mean, this is not a banker's ward. It's a, it's a, it's a battlefield and he's not fit for battle. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. And Puck actually comments on it. Uh, when he's you know, shuddering next to him, basically making fun of him. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. And it, you know, uh, foretells what's to come for him, which is, yeah, kind of being the coward of the group. It's, Puck says in the Dark Horses, we've never had this kind of character before. Yeah. It's great. Uh, what else? I guess, yeah, this episode ends very in sequence because this fight is not over in the least. You know, this following several episodes feel very chained together in a way that very few do um, in terms of the action sequence. It reminds me of Enoch in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, sure. It's a. Uh... I mean, it's one of those, and this one, it really does stick in my mind because it goes on, like, then there's the multiple Makaras, there's mm-hmm. Daima that comes, the Kundalini, then, you know, there's the Apostles and Ganishka, so it's a really a huge sequence that lasts a long time, and uh, like you mentioned, Walter, it really feels very action movie-like uh, in the way that it progresses, but at the same time, I've never seen a movie where action keeps ramping up like that. I feel like that's something you can do in, in a in a manga or a comic book. Uh, that's really unique to the medium because it can keep going and going and going and just like swallowing up uh, in in a way that in a movie people would need a breather, right? Yeah. Whereas here, since you're turning the pages, you can just pause a bit or do some stuff, flip some pages back. So it's really quite uh, extraordinary the way it goes and uh, really. It does happen a, a few times in the series to have that kind of progression like that, but I feel like this one specific is really the most, uh, the biggest, longest, most momentous, uh, and and one of the definitely one of the coolest of them all to me. Uh, really memorable in my mind. Yeah, they really had to work for that boat. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, and the thing is, all we've seen so far is pretty much just a prelude because uh, I mean, when Dieback come, comes along is when it gets serious. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's it. Uh, that's the end of volume 30. The next time we discuss Berserk will be volume 31. So we will kick that off in about a month. So until then. That's a podcast. Thanks wow. for listening. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Poila, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Poila has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. 
Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.